0: Welcome to another edition of San Luis Valley Voices, an SL Voices production. Without further ado, enjoy the program.
1: Larry Animal Garner is a local author, longtime San Luis Valley resident, and a man of many talents. In this podcast, we sit down with Larry to discuss such things as growing up here, his latest book, The Paranormal, math, and a whole lot more. I'm Adam, and SL Voices is back for another round of podcasts for 2022. We're kicking off this season with a very special local interview, veteran, racer, welder, motorcycle, and fast car enthusiast, as well as an accomplished author of a three-book published series that starts in the Deep South and ends up in the San Luis Valley. Welcome to SL Voices, Larry Animal Garner. How are you, sir?
2: I'm doing well, Adam. Thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate you joining us uh, on our first podcast for this year. Larry, where are you originally from, and how did you end up here in the San Luis Valley?
2: My parents were both from uh, Los Angeles, Colorado. And they moved to Pueblo looking for better jobs, that sort of thing. And I was born in Pueblo and lived there till I was 12. Okay. At that point, we moved up here because of my dad's job. I lived here from 64 until uh, 72 when I joined the Navy and then off and on since then.
1: What did you do in the Navy?
2: I worked on ejection seats and liquid oxygen systems, air conditioning and heating for the pilots, anything to do with their well-being or their uh, comfort.
1: Well, thank you for your service. Appreciate it. Thank you. Tell us all a little bit about yourself, Uh, your past, your history. Besides writing, which we'll get into, what else have you done?
2: I've done a lot of weird stuff in my life. After I got out of the Navy, I moved to New Mexico. I got started welding, working at a place that sold steel, and they wanted me to learn to weld. So I went to the college down there, to San Juan College, and Took welding and business and uh, body shop and a whole bunch of stuff that I wanted to learn how to do, but really didn't apply to getting a certificate or any kind of a degree. Mm -hmm. I went to college for four years straight, 12 months a year, just learning stuff I wanted to learn and working at that welding shop and then ended up being what they called a code welder. Everything we welded was x-rayed and checked 10 different ways and everything for high pressure uh, vessels to be used in the oil field.
1: Tight specifications, in other words. Right.
2: Right. Then I got hit by a car on my motorcycle and missed a bunch of work and lost that job and went to work in a body shop. Moved to Massachusetts and helped my friend build custom motorcycles for a while. As a sideline, I was driving a moving truck Mm -hmm. and then moved back to Monta Vista and got a job building farm equipment. Went from there to one of the bigger farms in the valley as a shop mechanic, building and repairing farm equipment, that sort of thing, doing all the paint and body on their vehicles and that sort of thing. I've been doing custom paint since 1973, body work, that sort of thing.
1: And you ended up out in Hooper.
2: Yes. How'd you get there? Well, when I left the farm up there in the center, we moved to uh, Vernal, Utah for a job I had up there working in the oil field, working at a well casing company. One of the bigger ones in that area, and I was building equipment and building trucks and doing lots of different things and ended up not really enjoying Utah like we thought we might. We moved back to New Mexico for a couple of years, and I was running a computerized plasma cutter set up down there, cutting parts and stuff for uh, wheelchair vans, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Got a job offer to come back to the valley working for the Bureau of Reclamation as a welder and maintenance person. And I worked there for 16 years until I retired and then when I retired from there, I got a job doing what I like to do. Went to work welding again here in Monte Vista and built some food trucks and different things. And, and I still do some welding off and on and building hot rods and motorcycles and that sort of thing.
1: That kind of leads into my next question about particular hobbies or special interests. You've told me you're into uh, different forms of racing. You've even won some championships. And as you mentioned, you do custom paint jobs and other things. Tell me about that.
2: I started doing custom paint in 73 when I was out in Virginia in the Navy. I ran into a friend of mine from Monta Vista out there, and he had a compressor and a little Sears paint gun. And so I did custom paints on all of our motorcycles for a while there. And then when I moved to Key West, I did more of that and building choppers and that sort of thing. And I still enjoy doing that. That's one of my favorite things. My dad and my uncles took me to drag races and stock car races starting when I was four years old. Mm Mm-hmm. So I've always been acclimated to racing. More for myself, the roundy round type stuff, oval track racing is something I'm a lot more attuned to than drag racing, but I've done some of that also. I raced in Aztec, New Mexico when I first moved down there in 79 for a few years. And then when we moved back here, we found out there was an oval track that they'd built in the valley, a dirt track got started doing that, ran into some people who got me going, helped me build cars. Mm -hmm. And the first year I won the mini stock championship, best looking car, rookie of the year, a bunch of different stuff. So that made me even more excited about doing more of it. So the next year we went to the truck series. And the year after that, we went to the street stock or hobby stock series. They had an offshoot of that. They called the enduro series, which was 50 and 100 lap races, and the hobby stocks were legal for that if we changed tires, so I won the championship in that, that year, and then the next year we built a super stock. It was a great car. We were planning on doing great things, and I had an accident at work, tore up my shoulder, couldn't drive, so a friend of mine had to drive the car, and then I drove a little in the uh, modified class. At one point along there, the guy that was running the track had a winter series, a tough truck series, out on the motocross track. And we were out there in the snow and the mud and stuff, in trucks and different things with roll cages in them. It was a time deal, one to time. And I won that championship also. I've had the good fortune to have people helping me that know what they're doing. And I've had a lot of fun racing. I'd like to get back to it if they ever get this track back to where they're racing cars out there again. I'd like to get involved.
1: So you grew up in Monta Vista. What was that like?
2: Well, back then, it was pretty slow. I had the first skateboard in Monta Vista. One of my uncles got out of the army and uh, was in California. That's where he separated. And uh, it was just getting started out there. And he picked one up and brought it to me for my birthday. And it was just a little old chunk of wood with metal wheels on it. And everybody I knew just about broke their neck on it. (laughs) It didn't take much of a rock to get thing stop. Rode my bicycle everywhere. Yeah, I got started early. Even when I ride bicycles, I'd always take them apart and paint them every year. Different color paint and different stuff and different handlebars and that sort of thing. And We had our little crew that we kind of hung out with and got involved with some people. When we first moved here, it was just before I started junior high. Mm-hmm. and ran into some four or five guys that I really liked. And we kind of hung out and did different stuff together. And that lasted for quite a while.
1: Did you stay in contact with any of them still?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. a couple of them are gone. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I had lunch with a couple of them the other day. Nice. Yeah, that was fun.
1: Where did the nickname Animal come from?
2: Well, <laughs> in the Navy. When I first joined the Navy, I'd grown up in Monta Vista. And I'd spent a year in Denver going to automotive school. So I wasn't, you know, totally naive and whatever, but I was still gaining my wings as far as being a partier. In the Navy, the first base I went to, they allowed you to go to the enlisted club, the bar and restaurant thing. They're on the base if you were 18, although in the state of Virginia, it was 21 outside off base. So all the young kids that were in the Navy or the Marines on that base could go to the enlisted club and and have a few drinks or a lot of drinks. of course. You know, a lot of us being away from everybody we knew for the first time got a little carried away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the name of that place to everybody on the base, the unofficial name was the Animal Locker. Ah. That's where all the animals hung out. That's where all the amateurs the amateur hour sort of thing. And uh, I didn't get that nickname there, but I kind of set the precedent for it. And uh, I became quite the prodigious partier when we were overseas and going to different places and stuff. I really enjoyed that. And I was pretty good at it. I don't remember exactly who hung that on me. But at one point, it was like, well, he is the animal. That's who they named that place after. After a while, I slowed down, but it didn't do any good. The name stuck.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you've got it to this day.
2: Yeah, to this day, I know people that that's the only name they know me by. Well, one of the reasons we
1: want to get together and do this podcast is to talk about your latest book. You are an accomplished author here in the Valley. You have written the Hammer series. Yes. You want to read a little bit out of one of those books?
2: Sure. This is out of the first book in the series. It's called D-E-D Dead. The protagonist is a guy named Eric Thorson. He joins a motorcycle club out of the Navy. And the play on the name Thorson, Thor's son, they call him Hammer. So that's his name. And Hammer hangs out with these guys for quite a while. And then he gets really fed up with some of the stuff they're doing. And one of the things he's really sick of is the fact that they cook and sell methamphetamines. And ruins a lot of people's lives, but kills a lot of people. So this is an explanation out of the first book about methamphetamine and why he is so against it. All right. Any group of people has a few stoners, some drunks, wife beaters maybe. But the organized outlaw motorcycle clubs are more like organized crime outfits. And the Piston Broke Motorcycle Club fits that description to a T. The only thing that matters is the club. These guys run hookers, own topless bars where they find and turn girls into hookers, taverns where they sell drugs and hookers, a couple motorcycle shops, and even a pizza joint. Of course, you can get some dope and even, surprise, a hooker delivered with your pie if you know the password. But the big money maker, the grand kahuna of their criminal enterprise is meth. Crystal meth is a substance made from cooking a bunch of poisonous chemicals, some of which are downright deadly, together, then cooling the resulting meth into a crystalline substance that, when induced into the bloodstream, makes good old speed look tame. Meth is like speed with a supercharger. It, simply put, induces an artificial fight-or-flight response in the body as well as a high state of euphoria. You get higher faster. And as a bonus, you get addicted in record time. Meth is a nightmare but it's relatively cheap and increasingly easy to get. You can smoke it, snort it, hell, you can even eat it. But the all-time favorite way to do meth is to shoot it directly into a vein. That way, there aren't any mucous membranes, lungs, or other filtering devices in the way of getting it into the blood. Whamma, the rush is incredible. Most first-timers puke their guts out. But hallelujah, that doesn't take the crap out of the blood or even dilute it. You can feel your hair growing, your vision and perception seem keener than ever, and you just know you can kick a grizzly's ass one-handed. You're 10 feet tall and bulletproof, for a while anyhow. Then you need some more, because it was so cool the first time. And more, and more. Pretty soon you realize that you can't deal with life without the crap. You're paranoid, capable of instantaneous violence with little or no provocation. You're selling stuff, your stuff, other people's stuff, stealing stuff to sell so you can get more meth women and some men sell themselves to get the longer it's been since they've had any the less they charge the ones that haven't degenerated too badly dance at topless bars selling themselves out back for dope or money to buy dope with meth is a plague an insidious attack against weak-willed and simply adventurous people alike that's why people like the pnbmc like it so much It provides an ever-increasing flow of customers and cash. It helps snag and keep the young hard bodies who dance in the clubs and sell their butts for the club's good. It fuels chaos. Their old buddy and co-conspirator, they definitely like meth.
1: Wow. Is there some tie in your past to this which kind of prompted you to focus on this in your book
2: series? Well, I've been in a couple different motorcycle clubs, not necessarily what you call an outlaw motorcycle club, but I've hung out with gobs of outlaw motorcycle people starting when I was in high school. There were a couple guys here in town that were part of the outlaw motorcycle club that had gotten banished to the valley to keep them out of harm's way, I guess you would say. And I hung out with them. And meth wasn't a big deal back then. But the longer I was around that kind of people and riding a motorcycle everywhere I went, there were times that was the only transportation I had. I would run into these guys, or the girls, or gobs of them at once. And uh, I became aware of it. And I was no saint, but it scared me. I tried it once, Mm -hmm. and I think I scared everybody in town. It was one of those deals, as soon as I got done going outside and emptying my stomach of all these contents, I came in the house, I said, let's go to a bar. And they said, no, we can't do that. Yeah, you because know, everybody there was just hiring a kite. And they're like, that's a really bad idea. And I go, well, bad idea or not, I'm going. So they all went with me to see if they could keep me out of trouble. And we went down to a local bar there in Farmington. And, oh, I was having a blast. I was having so much fun. It was ridiculous. Nobody else had any fun. And that convinced me that that was something I never needed to do again. That was a really bad idea. Because it was so much fun, and I could see it going badly, because I'd seen it go badly with a number of people. I'd seen some of them end up in jail, prison, dead. And I was like, "Well, I don't need to do that. I know enough ways to get hurt and in trouble. I don't need to add a new one that's so far above all the others as far as being something that's just downright scary." So I never did that again. But I've known a lot of people, like I say, over the years, that have succumbed to meth in various ways.
1: Which you said, even paying the ultimate price, too.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I hate it. It annoys me. Something fierce. That's how it bled over into this book. When I started the first book, people have been telling me for years, you ought to write books. You tell a great story. I was a guy in the bar telling all these stories about goofy stuff we'd been doing. Right. And I said, well, I can't write those down because those guys will get divorced and they may kill me. So I can't write those down. I can't, you know, make an actual record of that happening. Everybody said, well, you ought to write a book. You ought to write a book. This went on and on. And I had a knee replacement. and had lots of time. And I thought, well, I'll try this. And I sat down at my computer. And I had an idea in my head for this book, for the start of it at least. And I got about two chapters in. And the book took a right turn. And it found Hammer. I don't use an outline. I don't do any of that. I'm a pantser, I guess they call it. I'm a seat of the pants writer. Mm-hmm. I just sit there and I watch the movie in my head and write down what I see. I kind of let Hammer tell me how this book was going to go. All three books are in the first person. And I had a lot of people along the way when I first got started said, well, that's a really bad idea. You're doing everything wrong. You don't use an outline and blah, blah, blah. But my first two books were both finalists in Colorado Book Awards. So, you know, I mean, that's not a huge thing, but it was validation for me. The first time I did that, I sent that book in and I thought I'd be lucky if they didn't just laugh me out of town lady called me up and she said, oh, you know, your book is a finalist in the Colorado Book Awards. And I said, who is this really? Who put you up to this? I really thought it was somebody messing with. I said, yeah, right. And she goes, no, really? Your book is a finalist in the Colorado Book Awards. I said, okay, what's it going to cost me to be a finalist? And she goes, it doesn't cost you anything. I said, yeah, okay. How many finalists are there? 100, 200. And she says, there's three. She said, you're the hardest guy I ever tried to give good news to. (laughs) I said, well, I thought you were best with me. I thought this was somebody I knew having some fun. And she goes, no, this is on the level. This is legit. We want you to come to Denver and do a book reading Mm -hmm. or a couple. And I said, well, yeah, I'm game. Let's do that. Yeah, that's kind of where Hammer came from, was just a character that wanted to clean up his neighborhood, his community, and save his friends and family from going down the wrong road, basically, and from other people forcing them to do that.
1: Well, Larry, when you first started writing, did you see yourself becoming an author and writing a series like you've done? No. Okay.
2: No, as a matter of fact, I was against that from the get-go. <laughs> I wrote the first book, and I thought I wrapped it up pretty nicely. hmm I said, okay, there, I'm done with that guy, and now I'm going to do something different. I thought I'd write another book. I have an idea for a different book in my head.
1: You think you mentioned it was like five years between books?
2: Yeah, it was funny because within two or three weeks of publishing the first book and people actually getting it and reading it, I started getting this, okay, now what? What about this guy? What about that guy? Now what? What's going to happen with this? What's going to happen with that? And I'm like, well, I don't want to go there again. But I did.
1: Well, it sounds like the writer's bug hit you.
2: I wrote the second book, kind of a sequel thing, which I really wasn't planning on doing. And same thing. As soon as I got it done, people were like, okay, well, there's still some questions here that are unanswered. Now what? So I wrote the third book and people say, well, is that the end of the series? Well, for now. Yeah, at the end of the book, it says the end for now.
1: And to find out what's in between, you're going to have to pick up the book. Yeah. You got to get them.
2: And it did. It took me a while between books because the first book I wrote it, I was going to put it in a three ring binder, pass it around the bar to my friends. Here, look what I've been doing. And my wife said, no, you need to publish books. I said, no, can't afford to publish books and nobody's going to print the thing if I do it. You know, I mean, no. And she said, no, I've been a fundraiser for different charities and stuff for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, Mr. Fundraiser, Mr. uh, Guy with a Million Contacts, you can't print some books? Come on. So we did, we printed a couple hundred bucks and sold them in advance as a signed and numbered special edition. Right. Use that money to print them, and it went really well. It went a lot better than I ever thought it would.
1: So you're considered self-published then?
2: Yeah, technically. Uh, an indie author, self-published, yeah.
1: Is that a harder road?
2: The reason I didn't send this thing, the first one, or any of them, to uh, publishing houses and that sort of thing, is I'm not good at rejection. I didn't want to get two or 300 letters saying nope. Mm-hmm they may not have. Somebody may have liked it, but I knew this wasn't going to be something that set the world on fire. It wasn't going to be a bestseller uh, on the New York Times bestselling list, that sort of thing. It was my first book. It was just for fun, basically. And I thought, well, if I'll sell to some friends, family, whatever. And I sold a lot more than I ever thought I would. I carried them around in the uh, saddlebag of my motorcycle, trunk of my car, anywhere I went. And I'd see somebody reading a book at a 7-Eleven store late at night, you know, and I'd say, hey, you like to read? And I'd tell them about the books. And a lot of times I'd sell them a book. I still do that. I started writing as far as writing for other people to read in high school. I was the feature editor of our high school newspaper when I was a senior. Oh, And as such, I had to put all these weird little stories, fit them into the paper. Well, if there weren't enough or there wasn't enough to take up enough room for what I was allotted, I would write some weird little deal. I wrote some weird stories and a lot of people liked them. Mm -hmm. A lot of people thought I was probably mentally defective. I wrote stories about the pilgrims coming to America to find Steppenwolf. Stuff like that. And I did weird stuff. And then when I was, before I ever thought of actually writing a book, I was writing uh, articles for a magazine out of California called Thunder Press, a motorcycle-themed monthly. I did quite a bit of that. I enjoyed that. And then this just kind of took off from having a lot of time on my hands, and I was bored, and I thought, well, I will try this. People have been telling me for 30 years I should write a book. Let's see if it works.
1: Obviously, it has. You've got a three-book series now, which is really good, and of course, these are available on your website as well?
2: Yes, they're available on my website, and they're all available on Amazon and all that sort of thing as eBooks. All three of them are available as eBooks on smashwords.com. And, of course, locally, too. Yes, absolutely locally.
1: You have them here, and, and I believe the bookstore in uh, Alamosa carries them and yeah, some of the others.
2: they've got them at the uh, bookstore in Alamosa, and the first two books are in quite a few of the libraries around here. I haven't got around yet to donate the new one to the libraries, but a lot of the libraries have them. the first two.
1: And, of course, we have them here at SL Voices slash the Comp absolutely. Chat, too, so come on in and get them. We have a limited amount of actual signed copies, too. And your website, LarryAnimalGarner.com. That's right. All right. And there's other information there, too, not just about your books.
2: Oh, yeah. There's pictures there of stuff I've built and things I've painted and a little information about me. And I knew that using my Larry Animal Garner thing would probably limit how many books I sold. Mm -hmm. But I did that in case any of the people I knew from the Navy or... I literally know people around the globe as Animal from different motorcycle-related things and hot rod related things and now social media. Mm -hmm. A lot of them only know me as Animal. I figure some of the guys I was in the Navy with, that might ring a bell. They see that Larry animal. Was that the guy that was in the AME shop on the boat? And that's why I did that. And like I say, it probably hurts me as far as sales and that sort of thing, but it was something, kind of a nod to all the people I know who that's all they knew me by. When I first moved to Monta Vista, when I came back from Massachusetts, my phone, I lived right down the street here a couple blocks, and my phone in the phone book, my listing was Animal. I called up the phone company. I said, I want to do this. And they said, what name? And I said, Animal. And they said, well, we can't really do that. You we put your name with your nickname. And I said, that won't work. I know guys that only know me as Animal. And I told them to look me up in Monta Vista, Colorado, just ask for Animal. And they said, well, if you do a business listing, you can call it anything you want. There you go. So I had a business listing.
1: And speaking of businesses, you publish under Two Fingers and a Thumb Enterprises? Yes. Where did you come up with that?
2: That's how I typed. Oh, okay. Well, that's how I typed when I first started. I may use three or four fingers now, but when I first started, two fingers and a thumb was pretty much it.
1: You won't use like talk to text apps and such like that?
2: I haven't tried it because I use so much slang and weird little words that exist in my circle (laughs) that I don't want to spend all the time correcting what that thing writes down. So I just do it myself. It
1: makes sense. Again, everybody's got their own style of writing. Right. Any idea about how many books you've sold so far?
2: Maybe less than 2,000, maybe 1,500 bucks. Not bad at all. No, you know, considering that I thought I'd be lucky to sell 50 of the first one.
1: Do you think that your writing has changed over time for the better?
2: Oh, absolutely. The first book, like I said, I didn't have a clue. I just sat down and started writing just like if I was telling a story. And there's stuff in there that I would take out or change completely if I were to redo it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this last book... My wife read it and she looked at me and she said, your writing has come a really long way. She said, this is really good. So that made me feel better. And I knew that. I mean, I admitted that, you know, I'm not a professional writer. I don't do this every day. Every now and then when I get a spot of time when I'm not racing or building cars or building motorcycles or doing something else and it'll hit me, I'll think, oh, I ought to write a book. You know, I got time now. Because it's hard for me to sit down for an hour or two at a time and try to do anything as far as writing. Even on a weekend, it's hard because I've always got stuff going on. The second book I did when I had uh, my knee operated on for the second time.
1: Seems to be a recurring theme there.
2: Yeah, if I'd have known just how much it was going to bother me later in life, I'd have listened to my mother a lot better about jumping off of things when I was younger.
1: Now, your first book, D.E.D. Dead, is actually set in the Deep South? Yes. And then you move from there in books two and three. To the San Luis Valley.
2: Yes. The protagonist Hammer in the first book previously got out of the Navy in Virginia Beach, Virginia, gets hooked up with a motorcycle club in that area, what they call Tidewater. And that's where the first big action sequence takes place. He gets sick of his club and decides he's going to put a stop to what they're doing. And things strike the rotary oscillator pretty hard there, and uh, it gets pretty ugly, and he bails. He's an officer in this club. So now the feds the local cops, all the county cops, state cops in Virginia are all looking for him and all the officers, as well as he doesn't know whether the club knows he's the one that blew the whistle on them. They might be looking for him. So he goes to a friend's house in southern Tennessee that he had been to once before, and he's hiding out in the barn, hanging out. And just by weird circumstance, something happens that he finds out that a local chapter of that same club is doing the same thing and there's going to be a showdown between them and this other club from upstate Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And he thinks, maybe I can get these two guys fighting themselves and they can do all this for me. And he and a group of newly found friends in that area bring things to a head.
1: Don't give away too much now. I want people to buy the book. The
2: finale is pretty awesome. There's it's lots, of, lots of stuff happening.
1: Well, you want to read another section from one of the books? Sure. And set the stage for this too, please.
2: All right, this uh, section here is from uh, Danger Every Direction. Hammer and some of his friends ran into a family while they were all in Canyon City for Blossom Days and struck up a friendship. And one of the family members is a, a young woman, and this is what happens to her that sets the stage for a lot of the action in the book. Jessie Scalise is standing alongside one of the paved county lanes in what's called the St. Charles Mesa area, south and east of Pueblo. Her Sportster is dead, seemingly out of gas, although she filled the tank while in town an hour ago. It's fully dark out here in farm country, and the nearest house is four or 500 feet away down a dirt side road. She's trying to decide if she wants to leave the bike and walk to the nearest house to call her dad or push it along the deserted road to the house. She's been drilled ever since starting to ride, not to leave her bike on the side of the road unattended or it may not be there when she returns. A pair of headlights is approaching slowly from the north and Jessie is hopeful the driver will be someone she knows. She grew up out here on the Mesa and knows most of the families who live within five miles of her family's vegetable farm. As lights grow larger, the vehicle slows even more and pulls over onto the dirt shoulder in front of her bike. It's a van, one of the large delivery type units windowless with large double doors on the back the driver's door opens and a shape emerges from the van with a flashlight as a shadow rounds the corner of the van jesse sees a sloppy looking older man in denim coveralls holding the flashlight in a manner that allows her to see his face are you broke down the man sounds friendly and he's keeping a safe distance so as not to alarm the young woman this is a hell of a place to be stuck in the dark i think i ran out of gas jesse's wary not recognizing the driver of the van but is glad he stopped if she can get him to call her dad she should be home safe and sound within an hour's time or even less would you mind calling my dad when you get where you're going we don't live far from here he can bring me some gas i don't think we'll need to bother your dad the man says switching the flashlight to his other hand i always carry a can of gas in the van for my generator we'll have you running and headed home in a couple of minutes Jessie's relieved to hear this and is thinking she might neglect to tell her dad she ran out of gas. She really doesn't need the lecture, even though there must be a leak or a plugged filter responsible for the bike's malfunction. She'll check it out in the morning after her dad is off to set the irrigation for the day. As she removes the little yellow bike's gas cap, momentarily distracted by her thoughts, The man opens the back door of the van and two young men in dark clothes and wearing ski masks explode out of the van. One of the men grabs Jessie from the rear, pinning her arms to her sides. The other slaps an adhesive bandage across her mouth before she can even react and wraps a long fabric strip around her head in a series of loops to keep the improvised gag in place. Duct tape would work better, but the men's clients don't like it when the merchandise is damaged. The haircut resulting from using tape made a negative impression on their customers the first couple of deliveries. So the abduction crew developed this alternative. Loosening the fuel line and draining most of the gas out of the bike's tank while Jesse was in the Pueblo Mall, getting an ice cream with a friend was easy. Only one shopper passed by while one of the younger men was doing the deed, and they didn't even slow down. From there, all they had to do was follow the yellow motorcycle until it ran out of fuel. The custom tank doesn't have a fuel reserve function like the stock tank does, so when the fuel runs out, that's it. No second chance. They couldn't have been any luckier. The little yellow two-wheeler died climbing a gentle rise in the road, basically in the middle of nowhere. The nearest house is more than 100 yards away, and its garage is between it and where the bike died. There's no traffic out here this time of night, so all they have to do is get the girl and the bike into the van before anyone drives by. Piece of cake. In a little more than three minutes, Jessie is secured to a wire cot bolted to the floor of the van and her little yellow Sportster is strapped to tie-downs in the floor. The doors slam and the van has gone into the inky darkness, carrying cargo the crew will be handsomely rewarded for. Oh my. And it happens all the time. Sadly. Yeah, it is sad, but it happens all the time. And that's another one of the themes that is in these three books is the bad stuff people do to other people, especially to, to young women.
1: So the protagonist in your book is Hammer. Yes. The antagonist is several people, but would that tie to meth throughout?
2: I don't believe there's one person in all three books that that shows up as a recurring character. In every book, there's one main butthead. (laughs) But then there's a whole host of other people that are doing business with that person or working for that person or that sort of thing. In each book, there's a few antagonists. But there's usually one main character that draws most everybody's ire, but he has people working for him, he or she, people working as underlings or uh, people that do business with that person that contribute to the problem. In the first book, The antagonist was basically the motorcycle club, and the president of the local chapter down there in Huntsville, Alabama was the main part of that club, but there were four or five characters in that group, including his wife, that really were evil people, (laughs) and uh, drew a lot of the attention to themselves.
1: But we're not going to give too much away. Oh, no. Certainly want you to go out, pick up the books. D.E.D. Dead is the first in the series. Dead Reckoning is the second, and the latest release just came out late last year?
2: Yeah, it was published in October, and we had the uh, book release party, that sort of thing, in November.
1: That's right. So it's Danger Every Direction is the third in the series, and certainly encourage you to go out, get your copies however you can, and enjoy the series by local author Larry Animal Garner. Now, Larry, we talked a little bit about uh, Monta Vista earlier. Let's circle back around to that. How do you see it has changed over the years?
2: Well, <laughs> meth is a real good start. Add drugs. There's more drugs in Monta Vista than there ever has been. I think not just Monta Vista, probably every town in, in the valley or probably anywhere, period. Mm-hmm. I think that it has gotten to the point, editorializing a little here, that the locals are so used to it that it doesn't bother them like it used to. This level of people stealing and robbing and and doing stuff to get money for drugs wouldn't have been tolerated when I was a kid. Somebody had been beat upside the head with a hammer out in their backyard. This wouldn't have gone on like it does now. I think that it has gone on so long to such an extent that people are kind of deadened to it. They don't react like you would think they would. Some people do. Some people hate it. A lot of people hate it, but they won't do anything about it. They won't even say anything about it. Because they're afraid that they're going to end up on the list of people that need to be shut up. With all the stuff that's gone on in this valley in the last few years, all the deaths and the crazy things happening, it's a lot scarier living around here than it used to be.
1: Yeah, you know, Larry, we talked earlier about the paranormal here in the San Luis Valley. And we are known, of course, at the state level, as the mystic San Luis Valley. What is your belief on all of this? And have you actually seen
2: anything unexplained? Oh, man. Yeah, I could write a book about that if I'd taken notes the whole time. I've seen lots of stuff in the skies around here that make no sense at all. Really? Oh, ever since we moved here. Actually more back then than now. But we see stuff now, still. We're not that far from the Sangres, and we see lights that make no sense. That come and go in a blink of an eye and stop. They'll be running way fast and then just stop. And then make a 90-degree turn, go straight up, and then disappear. It's not an airplane. I mean, anybody says that's an airplane or a weather balloon is obviously delusional. I've seen stuff and experienced stuff over the years that is pretty weird. I'm pretty convinced. I don't know that all this uh, technology, all the things we see is from outer space, Mm -hmm. but it's not normal. It's uh, definitely not something that most people can explain.
1: Given that we're not that far in South Central Colorado from Area 51, maybe it's something from there?
2: Could be from there. And there are rumors that there are tunnels from the San Luis Valley to NORAD. Right? Yeah. I've heard that could be. Maybe they bring them over here or set them loose. I don't know. That seems far-fetched to me. But I think a lot of it is just advanced aircraft and advanced technology that they run up against the Sangres and try to jump over the top of it without being caught by NORAD. And this is where they test it. This is where they test that stuff to see if it works like they want it.
1: I also know the Air Force does runs down here too. Yeah. Because this is an area very similar to what they might encounter overseas.
2: Yes. One
1: final question. What's next for the Hammer series? Isn't it going to take five years for a fourth book?
2: Uh, Probably not.
1: That's an open-ended answer. (laughs)
2: Yeah, i got to leave myself some wiggle room. Actually, I was going to sit down and start doing some writing, and then I mashed the finger on my hand. It's my good hand, not my stupid hand, so I can not do much with it, and that's going to slow me down. I don't know that the next book I write is going to be in the Hammer series. I've got two or three books that I'm wanting to write. One of them is uh, also set in the San Luis Valley, but it's not going to be any way related or even reference the Hammer series.
1: Well, you said, you've got a lot of ideas. You've got a lot of stories to tell.
2: And I have an idea in my head to continue this series. And I've had a lot of people already contact me after the new book saying, you've got to continue with this. We've got to see what happens next. So we'll see.
1: Anything else you'd like to mention?
2: I guess the main thing I would like to say in that regard is, if you see something, say something. Don't be one of these people that hides and lets things happen that endanger your family, your neighbors, your friends, your community. Everybody needs to start working together to take our communities back. And uh, I hope that happens. I'm actually running for office. I've always kind of shied away from that. Mm Mm-hmm. Didn't want to put myself in a situation where I had to donate all that time and effort and energy, thinking maybe it wouldn't matter. But now I think that everybody should think that their opinion matters and everybody should get involved in whatever community they're in and try to make things better.
1: Is that something you can officially say, what you're running for?
2: It's on on the record. I'm running for mayor of Hooper. As such, don't really have any power because the mayor doesn't vote unless there's a tie. Right. But I have lots of contacts from all my years of doing nonprofit stuff and raising money for charity, that sort of thing. And I know a lot of people that are in office, and I'm not shy about getting on the phone and asking for opinions or help or ideas. And I think I can uh, instigate some change.
1: Very good. So it'll be Mayor Animal or Mayor Garner? <laughs>
2: Depends on who you talk to. <laughs>
1: Larry, I want to thank you so much for taking time to talk to us here about your latest book in your series, the Hammer series. It's considered vigilante justice, action thrillers type of writing. I certainly wish you the best. Good luck with your mayoral race there. Don't forget, the copies of the Hammer novels, of course, are available directly at your website, LarryAnimalGarner.com. Get them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords, locally right here at the Comcheck. Larry, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Adam. I appreciate you having me on
1: Local author of a gripping three-book vigilante justice series, Larry Animal Garner is quite the accomplished person. To find out more about Larry and his books, visit his website, LarryAnimalGarner.com. That's LarryAnimalGarner.com. He's also on Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, Goodreads, and more. You can find Larry's books in the San Luis Valley at the Com Shack, Narrow Gauge Book Co-op, as well as several local libraries. Special thanks to Don Richmond, local musician and owner of Holland Dog Recording Studio for providing the original music for this podcast.
0: We appreciate you telling your friends to listen to the podcast on slvoices.com and check out our extensive calendar of events, The Most Listings in the Valley. You can help spread the word too by joining our Facebook group, SL Voices, Your Voice in the San Luis Valley, and liking our post on other social media outlets. Also check out our Instagram page for occasional behind-the-scenes looks at what we do. And please, patronize our local sponsors. Remember to support the businesses here in the Valley. Most are owned and operated by your family, friends, and neighbors. We all love this area, want to see it flourish, and you can help by buying and supporting locally in your own and surrounding communities. Check back for another local podcast soon. Until then, this has been San Luis Valley Voices, and SL Voices production.